I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 11 as we've been talking about memories. Um, I chose uh, the memories that I wanted to bring to mind are found in Isaiah 11, chapter 11 through 12. Really, you start around chapter 9 and you have this section of the Messiah where um, I think in some ways, if you look at chapter 9, really there's the first Christmas light. I noticed this after I put this series together. We could actually done then. And then last week we talked about the first Christmas tree, 11-1, this shoot that comes out which is the tree and the Messiah. And then from that, as we look today, we're going to look at the fact that it is a first Christmas card, this banner. It's the reason why we had this banner coming in front of us here. And then tomorrow, or next Sunday, not tomorrow. Um, if you want to come back tomorrow, I'll try it. No, um, next Sunday, we'll actually be looking at the very first Christmas carol, this song of praise that ends this section of the Messiah. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence here. And I just now invite again your Holy Spirit to move in our hearts and our minds to speak to us. I I do pray, God, um, there are people um, I know who right at the very forefront of their heart is some issues, some concerns. And and God, I ask that you would be able to touch into each of the lives of people who come and as they open their hearts, speak, uh, move. May there be a fresh encounter with you in Christ's name. Amen. Richard Amor wrote, You cannot reach perfection though you try, however hard to. There's always one more friend or so you should have sent a card to. You feel that way around Christmas? And that card comes and goes, Oh, we didn't send it to. Or did you send it? Well, that's exactly how Sir Henry Cole felt some 150 years ago, because back then they didn't send cards, they sent greetings, Christmas letters, uh, because they didn't have Facebook and email and phones and, and all those kind of ways to connect and say what's going on in their lives. So they would actually send letters around Christmas time, which would tell what has been happening in their lives over the last year to friends who may be distant or away. And so it Henry Cole had this feeling, but for a different reason, because he had a burden on his heart. The founder of the Victoria and Albert Museum in London had so many Christmas greetings that he wanted to send that handwriting them he knew would be impossible. The message he wanted to get across, not just to people far away, but close to him, would take more than his ability to do it. Yet he wanted his friends to be aware of those who were destitute on the holiday. That was what was on his heart. And the answer came in the form of a card. In the year 1843, Sir Henry commissioned John Calcott Horsley to paint a card showing the feeding and clothing of the poor. And on it, he wrote, A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. The center panel displayed a happy family embracing one another, sipping wine and enjoying the festivities. But so much for good intentions. The card drew criticism from people because it showed a child enjoying a sip of wine. and They considered that fostering the moral corruption of children. Isn't it amazing when someone tries to do good, how there's always someone to critique it? And and, and the legend of it goes, according to the Post and Greeting Card Museum, that Sir Henry didn't send any cards the following year. But the custom of sending cards began to grow in popularity. Well, Christmas card, folks, is on the decline. Did you know that? With all the Facebook and emails and all the things we have in modern technology, it's on its 
way down, they say. But yet, last year, over 1.9 billion cards were sent, announcing good tidings of joy and of Christmas. And you know what's interesting, what's happening with the Christmas card? It's, it's becoming not a card any longer. It's becoming a what? Photograph, right? A photograph of some kind of event that happened in the past year that you want people to see and to know and so that people kind of still see that you're okay, right? You may see them. I see you every week, but you may get one that shows you maybe in a warm climate or at a, a wedding or at some other kind of festivity because we still send cards. And we still send out announcements that rally people around something that we love. Well, if you look at the first Christmas card sent in 1840 and how that began, I want to pull you back further, 600 years before Christ, where the very first one, I think, was sent by Isaiah, through Isaiah, from God, to announce the birth, the good news that his son, this Messiah, would come in history. And so basically, um, in those days, they didn't have cards and they didn't have the ability to send things such as that. What they used in those days to rally people together to announce something was a banner. So if you look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, it continues what it said in verse 1. And it says, in that day, the root of Jesse or the root shoot will stand as a banner for the peoples. And the nations will rally to him and his place will be of rest will be glorious. There's a, a number of examples in, in the Bible of banners. They go all the way back to Numbers chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, The Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting some distance from it, each man under his standard or flag with the banners of his family. Because as they would do that, they would kind of know. You know, it's kind of like if you've ever, have you ever gone on a cruise or you've been on a vacation thing and you see a person walking around with this like little flag or something or they're carrying something? It, it's to get people's attention, to rally them together. Well, that's what that did. There's also, if you look in Exodus chapter 17, verses 15 and 16. Verse 15 says, Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. For he said, His hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. It was when Israel was coming in to take the land of, of Palestine. As they were going through the wilderness, they came across a group of people called the Amalekites who, who stood against them, wouldn't let them cross their territory. And so as a result of that, they had to go to battle to go through it. And as they did, Moses, it says, stood with his hands in the air. And there were two people on either side of him as he interceded for the Lord. And as he had his hands in the air, they won. And when his hands got heavy and he got tired, they fell down. So eventually Aaron and Hur stood on either side and held his hands up until the victory was won. And Moses says, I'm going to build an altar here at this place that will, in a sense, when people look at it, be a banner that all will recognize and see that God loves us. And then as you go on, you can see in chapter 2 of verse 4 in the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, a similar idea. When this one who is loved romantically says, He has taken me to the banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 26 says, He lifts up a banner. Here in Isaiah, the first time he mentions the idea of banner. He lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. It's, it's, he goes, I did it for service and it didn't work and they all laughed at me. But anyway, 
It actually, that's, he, he whistles like that. You know how you do that when you whistle and, and, and people hear it and then they come? That gets their attention. He says he whistles like that and draws all people together. This time, not as he's coming to the root of Jesse, he's bringing these nations together to bring judgment upon his people. But then he moves into this verse in chapter 11. And after he says, here, over here, gather here, he says, once again, I'm going to cry out through this Messiah who is to come. I'm going to send up this banner and rally all people together around this one and announce these things. Three things I want to share with you that he's going to announce. One is he's going to rally people together. Everyone he'll rally together and he will announce to all people this incredible event that's going to happen. Isaiah 10, 11, verse 10 says, In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and the islands of the sea. What you need to notice, you look at verse 10, he makes this statement that he is actually going to bring a banner for the peoples, he says. He says the nations will rally. This is not, he's calling beyond Israel here. The actual word in the Hebrew is the word goyim, and, 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 and it means the Gentiles. It means those who are not Jews, his People that are not chosen. This is going to be a time that God is going to move on earth in such a way that he will talk in a sense to every person and call every person to him. Every person will be called who wants to respond to his chosen. And the root of Jesse, without exceptions, every nation will rally to this Messiah. To make this clear, Isaiah chapter 11 goes on in verse 11 to show that even the exiled. So, so we talk about the Gentiles and those out here, and, and you've got Israel who, who is living here. What about the people who have been outcast and who are now exiled as a result of God's hand of discipline? He says they will even hear the announcement. Verse 11, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant. And I want you to note where his hand reaches, how... When, when I say this is a rallying point for all people, I want you to note, according to that day when he was writing it, there's, on a map, you'll, you can see the, the then-known world. And, and this shows the Babylonian kingdom where it was after Isaiah's message came. Babylon came in here and the people were dispersed throughout the world. And so he basically says, and he starts out and he talks about Assyria. He talks about Babylon. He talks about Elam, which is this Midian-Persian kingdom here. He then goes down. He talks about Upper and Lower Egypt. He talks about Cush over here, which is Ethiopia. He talks about Hamath, which is in Syria. And from this area here, which is a port city, he talks about the, um, the rest of this islands of the sea. And then he's basically saying from every corner of the earth, even to Wyzetta Plymouth up here in the corner. Everyone. All people. In fact, the second announcement comes in the time of this birth. He sends a card, but God is so cool because he sends a second card. If you look at Luke 2, verse 8 through 10, this time through shepherds he comes and makes this announcement. 
And you see the parable. And there were shepherds living out in the field nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were terrified. But the angel says to them, as this glory is around them, and this light is shining so brightly, he says to them, don't be afraid. I, I bring you great, incredible news announcing this rallying banner of God's love to each and every person who wants to hear. He says, I bring you news of great joy that will be for what? All the people. Unfurled over their head and over your head is a God who loves you. And he's not a God who's just for some people that he's chosen. It is a God whose love is available to any person. It is a God who loves imperfect people. This is not just a God who says you're religious and you're morally upstanding that I'm here because I, I love you. I love all of you. You don't have to be a monk, a mystic, a missionary, or a hermit. God whistles and says to ordinary, everyday, imperfect people who have blown it and failed, I call you. That's why verse 11 makes it so clear. He includes here purposely the people who have blown it big, who have failed, the people who need a second chance. That's why he says in that day God will reach out a second time. You have this incredible picture of this God who comes to every person in this place and in this community and in these cities around us and in this nation and in this world. And he stands over as a banner who says, I love you. I have given myself. I have entered into this history so that all people might come to me and might know me, even imperfect people, even people who need do overs. You ever play games where someone starts, you know, you do make a move and you go, oh, do over, do over, right? And you're that person who's, and then you got a brother and sister who say no. When God, when God hears the cry of do over, even if it's seven times 70, God says, I forgive. I will forgive if your heart is sincere. I will forgive you if you come repentant. God sends Christmas cards to everyday sinners like you and me. And if you are willing, if you're willing to surrender yourself fully to him, guess what? God wants to use you. And not because of your abilities, not because of anything you can bring to him, but because he is a God who is gracious and loving. And he likes to take people and use them as banners and trophies to show his grace and mercy to other people. And so when you think about it, just, I just want you to think about this fact that God never comes to any person and he says, I'm sorry you have gone so far off the rails, my grace isn't good enough. I'm sorry, you've gone just too far. In fact, when you, you look at the cast of character that God calls and uses throughout the Bible, it is amazing. Abraham was a liar, Jacob a deceiver, Moses was a fugitive, Joshua was jealous, Gideon was a coward. Samson was a walking impulse control disorder. Eli was a bad father. David was an adulterer. Elijah was suicidal. Disciples were all people of little faith. James and John were status seekers. Peter denied Jesus three times and cut a guy's ear off. Paul stood and watched the death of many people. And at one point, precisely when he felt the most inadequate, he said God's word came to him and said this. When he felt that he had blown it the most, that he didn't have abilities to anything that God could do through him, his word came to him and said, my grace is sufficient for you. So there is not a person here. There is no individual within this place or that you have connection to that God can't initiate redemption and work in their life. I mean, just think of the cast of characters that God has used. 
you, if, you, if you say somewhere in that line, I've got some of those things, God can use you. If your heart's open and you just say, God, I want to be used. This banner is for you. It's also a rally cry of unity. It's an announcement about God's bringing all people together. The banner signifies that God has shown up on earth. His presence has been made known through the birth, entering into a child whose name is Jesus, who is both fully God and man. And in it, he calls all people to unity and catches in him. That's why when you read in verse 10, the root of Jesse will stand. He doesn't say anything else, but the, the shoot, this, this idea of this Messiah, this branch, this one who's called all these different names throughout Scripture. This person who you relate to is that which who calls you to unity. And the nations will rally to him. Verse 12 through 14 makes this explicit. When I was praying through this, I was saying, okay, God, help me understand this. And I saw those first two verses. It talks about all people. And then I see how it moves into it. And it says, not only is it for all people, but God unifies them around Jesus. His, he will raise a banner for the nations and will gather the exiles of Israel. And he will assemble. He assembles the scattered people of Judah. You see how he brings them together in unity? From the four quarters of the earth, Ephraim's jealousy will vanish. That which would cause division. Judah's enemies, or, or some of your footnotes in, in the Bible, use the word hostility or oppression will be cut off. And, and I think that's really the better translation. Because if it goes on, you see the parallel again. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. The, the sisters who are fighting, the brothers, if you want to call it that way, who are fighting as two nations, a northern and a southern kingdom that God at one time had as one people. Here is Isaiah speaking to these people. They are at this point when he's speaking to them, a divided nation. God is coming through Assyria, through this eastern power, to come and to deal with this nation, the northern nation. And yet Israel is all, Isaiah is also pointing to the southern kingdom that God is going to deal with you. But someday, someday, these two that are fighting through jealousy and hostility will be brought together so they will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. And together, this, and this is a huge announcement, they will plunder the people to the east. And why is that a huge announcement? Because Assyria was the growing power at that time. Assyria was the one that God said he would use to actually come and judge. But he says there will come a day that you will actually go back in there and you will actually plunder those. And they will lay hands on Edom and Moab. And the Ammonites will be subject to them. And they will no longer be divided. Jesus will be the rallying point. Jesus is the one that unifies all people. It is the presence of God and His grace and His mercy and truth and His love that He brings us around. And yet we're so human. We seek to make everything but the presence and power of God through Jesus our rallying point. We, we seek to take everything but this relationship that calls us to a place of brokenness and need and humbles us and causes us to see that it's not by our abilities that we, we have a relationship, but because of Him. And because of Him, then we all can come. All jealousy, all these other things have to go away because God gifts people the way He gifts people according to His choosing. God works in the lives of people the way He decides to work. And all of us, because of our brokenness, we see it and we understand it and we know it. He calls us into His place. And yet we use things such as an agreed-upon vision and a well-laid strategy is what will unite us. Now, I'm not saying that's not a good thing. Okay, don't, don't get me wrong on that. It's a tool 
to unite us around a person. We believe that it's a, that, that our unity might be bound up in a creedal statement. Let's all get behind a specific doctrinal stance. If we all stand here, then we'll be united. And I'm not saying that's not a good thing. It's a very good thing. But if you, all you have to do is go back to the Reformation, and you'll find that when there was that divide, it divided into all kinds of other little branches. And again, hear me, I'm not saying it's bad to be around a doctrinal stance, but the, the actual thing that unites us is Jesus. His presence and relationship in our life based upon this simple conviction. I'm broken. I need His life in my life. I need His grace. I need His ability to show up in my personal life, whether it be in my marriage with my children, whether it be where I work, whether it be in relationship to anybody. And unfurling like a banner standing over us and calling us as Jesus, not some creed or strategy, but a person. And our unity is not around some human initiative, some human wisdom, some human endeavor. It is around a human who is fully God in the flesh, born in a manger, hoisted upon a cross, drawing all people together by his love and an understanding of our need. And it's the root of Jesse, Jesus the Messiah, the very presence of God, calling us to relationship by his grace and goodness, with an acknowledgement of our sin and our selfishness. Well, this past week, as I was... um, Watching Tiger Woods' score go from one to four to seven to the last count being 11 or whatever. I don't know if you were like me, but I was getting more disgusted. I was becoming more judgmental. And as I was doing that, I remember going down in the basement to get something and it hit me. It hit me really hard. It was like God saying, um, and, and I, I want to say this in... It's not that his sin and he should be excused of his wrong and the consequences of it. But what hit me was this. He's broken and he needs Jesus. And I thought to myself, how can I stand in judgment? I mean, God's his judge and he'll have to deal before his maker with that. But I really stand I stand beside him as a broken person. He may not acknowledge it. I pray he does. But honestly, folks, that's what it means to be united around Jesus Christ. It means, as we've been saying from week to week, and you stand up and you say, Hi, I'm Kevin Meyer. I'm a sinner. And what unites all people together is the root of Jesse, the Messiah. And the Messiah comes. And the reason why you need a Messiah is because you need someone to deliver you. And if you're not in a place of deliverance, you really don't need the Messiah. So what happens if you're not in that place, even if you're a church-going religious person, you might just stand here, or if you're not, it doesn't matter. You stand in pride and judgment, and and you make all kinds of accusations. And, And the reality is we all are people in need who need a deliverer. And that's what unites us. And so I ask you to think for a second, who are you divided today against? Who do you, in a sense, allow yourself to be distant, standing afar with a sense of judgment, with a sense of pride that divides you? And again, I'm not saying you let people off the hook or or in that sense of, of, of dealing with what they need to deal with. You need to speak truth. You need to come around them in loving ways. You need to do whatever you need to do. But the reality is the heart is one that comes in grace and love and humility and speaks those things because you know you don't stand any better than any other person. Because you need Jesus. And it's an announcement of God's power. If you look at the first part of 1115, 
It's this, this rallying cry, the banner of this Messiah is one who comes to deliver with power. And I love verse 15 because it, it talks, it says, the Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. He, he's reminding them in an almost futuristic sense. And, and God has this unique way of reminding people what he's done in the past. The Lord dried up the Egyptian sea. He has this ability to come into your life because of who Jesus is through the power that comes to the relationship of knowing him and walking with him and submitting your heart to him and allowing him to come into your life. He has the ability to take habits and begin to transform them. He has the ability to take things in your life that you were were developed as a child and has formed you. And he has the ability to reform you because he's given you a choice. He's given you the ability to put faith and trust in a God who has all the power in the world to make a way when you didn't think there was a way possible. He has the ability to, to dry up a dead sea. Think about it. He's reminding them of what happened in their life. Here was what happened in the life in the nation of Israel. There was a people called Israel. They were in Egypt. They were in no way able to free themselves, whether they tried to rebel or whatever. They couldn't do it. They needed the delivering initiative of God. So God calls a, a person who takes leadership and announces this and goes to the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh chooses to let them go. They begin to leave. He, Moses has all the people behind him. And as he's leading them to this place, which is called a place of promise where God will be present with them, he leads them right past the shortcut. You see, there was a shorter way to get to the land of promise. But he walks right by it. And I think the people are scratching their head going, what's going on? Well, Moses knew. God had made it very clear to Moses that the people weren't ready. They weren't strong enough to believe and entrust in this power of God to work in their life, to do the things that needed to be done for them to conquer the people they needed to conquer. So he leads them by the shortcut, brings them to the end of a, you know, to the front of the sea. They're standing there with Moses at the front of the sea. The people turn around and look, and what's behind them is Pharaoh and the army of Egypt coming after them. And their reaction is what every one of us is. Oh, great job you've done leading us now, Moses. It says they cried, they complained. They said, did you bring us out here so they could slaughter us here? And Moses, knowing in his heart, calls out to God because God knew that he had to bring this people to the end of themselves, to the end of their abilities, so that they could only put their hope and their trust and their faith in God alone to deliver. He brings them to the sea and he lets them see what's going to happen. And he says, Moses, raise your staff. Moses raises his staff and the sea parts and they walk through it and they see the demonstration of the power of God. And they see God making a way when they thought there was no way possible. And you may be this morning going, I don't see any way possible for God to do what needs to be done. Guess what? God has the power and the ability to do what needs to be done. God makes ways when there are not ways. God knows how to step in and initiative, make an, the initiative to do what he needs to do. That's why in verse 15, as you continue in verse 15 and 16, he goes on to say, you people, as you see this Assyrian nation and you see the river Euphrates, listen to what he says. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that men can cross over in sandals. Someday you'll be over across the river and you'll be wondering once again, how do we get back? How do we get back? There's no way. There's no way. And he says he will break it up into seven streams. You know what's really interesting? They say Euphrates River in your translations. The only thing really in your Hebrew Bible is the river. 
That was the only river that people were really, when they talked about the river, that's the one they referred to. Not the Nile, not the Jordan. They didn't refer to other ones. The river was the big, mighty Euphrates. It was that river. And he was saying that river, someday, God of the scorching wind, just like he did once before, will come through and break it into a bunch of little streams so that you can actually, with sandals, walk across. And God says, I'll do it again. You don't need to worry. Verse 16, there will be a highway. There will be a highway for all who are imperfect people who need do-overs. This God will deliver. And some of you know what that's like because you have in your own life experienced your own brokenness. You've been in a Tiger Woods kind of situation where you in your own heart said, I just don't see a way. My sin is so great. God, how in the world would you ever allow me to experience your love and your grace? And how in the world would you ever be able to use me? And you have experienced a time that was very clear when Jesus spoke to you and said, on the cross, that's where I took your sin. I removed any obstacle in your way to God out of pure grace. And you need to remember, some of you, that God can still do what he needs to do in your life. And some of you may be in a situation where you see your sin, you see what you've done, and and you kind of go, how in the world can I ever get into that place where God can use me again? Or how can I ever know this love or grace? And God says, I've done it through a cross. And I've made it plain. And he says, now I want you to know this. That as I have worked in your life and as I have moved in, in your life in the past, and some of you who need to enter into a place where you, for the first time, in trust and faith, allow God to dry up the shame and the sin in your life as a result of what he's done. As you begin to do that, now God says, take that same love that you've experienced and be a banner of love to other people. Begin to live your life in such a way that you now are this banner that it rallies people around, around God because they see the love of God that has touched your life now pouring through your life. Be the kind of person that because you've experienced forgiveness, you forgive. May not be easy to do. In fact, you may need to do that again this morning where you just say, God, I choose because of your forgiveness, I forgive. Be a banner of God's love and forgiveness. Where you've experienced the mercy of God when he could have done something far greater that could, as a result of of, of what you have done in, in, in your sin and the consequences of it, and you find that he's been merciful, then go out and do the same thing to someone else who needs your mercy. Because God has been good to you, go ahead and and begin to think about the fact there are people around you who need a banner of love, that they experience goodness from you, because in experiencing that goodness, they experience the Spirit of God touching their life. Be the kind of person as you live this life that you have experienced kindness from God. Show kindness to him. Some of you know that God got a hold of you and he grabbed a hold of you out of love and he spoke truth to you. And that truth was so important because it was God's grace to you. Because that truth said you can't keep doing this. And as a result of that, you might be in a position where you need to speak truth to someone else. Be a banner. How many have sent Christmas cards? Okay. Those of you who haven't, I'm going to encourage you, don't send them this year. Some of you are going, yes, no. Um, I'm going to encourage you to be the Christmas card. I, I, I mean that, seriously, be the Christmas card. And I'm not talking about bumper sticker kind of Christianity. I'm, it, it, this is not about your gifts and your abilities, but it's all about God's grace. It's not about developing some kind of Christian subculture, but it's about living the kind of life that Jesus lived, which impacted our culture. Um, I had a friend who shared with me 
I'm a very credible friend, this interesting story, and I'll share it with you as well. He said a man was uh, being tailgated by a stressed-out woman on a busy street. Just in front of him, the light turned yellow. And he did the right thing and stopped at the crosswalk, even though he probably could have um, made it through the intersection if he just would have put his you know, pedal down on the gas. But the tailgating woman, she was furious. Repeatedly, she honked her horn, screamed in frustration because she missed her chance to get through the intersection. And while doing so, she dropped her cell phone and her makeup. And so as she scrambled to get it, and while she's still in mid-rant, she heard a tap on her window and looked into the face of a very stern police officer. The officer ordered her to exit her car with her hands up. He took her to the police station where she was searched, fingerprinted, photographed, and placed in a holding cell. And after a couple of hours, a policeman approached the cell, opened the door, and she was escorted to the booking desk where the arresting officer was waiting with her personal effects. He said, I'm very sorry for the mistake. You see, I pulled behind your car while you were blowing your horn, gesturing rudely to the guy in front of you, and cussing a blue streak at him. But then I noticed a What Would Jesus Do window sticker, the Choose Life license plate holder, the Follow Me to Sunday School bumper sticker, the chrome-plated Christian fish emblem on the trunk, and naturally I assumed you had stolen the car. (laughs) I am not in any way advocating skin-deep kind of Christianity because I think the world around us is tired of Christians who are known mainly for bumper sticker, Christian slogans, Christian t-shirts, listening to Christian music on Christian radio stations, buying Christian merchandise and living in our little cloistered Christian communities. I don't believe in bumper sticker Christianity. This is about lives, real lives who are so convinced that they gather together to praise and celebrate God because God has so touched their lives with His love and His goodness that as they begin to experience it and they grow into an intimate walk and relationship with God. It's not a Sunday, but it's it's an actual say, God, I want to live with you, know you, experience you, so much so that as I know your love and your grace, that you will begin to so move in me that it will begin to start to flow through me into the lives of other people. And that will become literal Christmas cards. Banners showing the love of God all over us. Altars built where he's at work. I'm going to conclude with one more story. And I challenge you again to be the Christmas card. I read an interesting story in the Star Tribune last week. Some of you may have read it. It was in the CJ column. I don't read that often, to be honest with you. So um, It begins, Market Barbecue. Staffers were delighted to do the math after Gregory Tang provided an unexpected contribution to their coffers. Steve Polsky, the market barbecue owner, said, You have to be nice to everybody because you never know who you're talking to. He said, You know, this guy turns up and he asked if we were open. And I said we weren't really open for another 15 minutes, but we'd be happy to take care of you. So he showed him to a seat. This man identified himself as a mathematician conventioner. And he asked Polsky, what should I order from the menu? Polsky said, I said, our signature item is spare ribs. And he said, that's, the mathematician responded, he said, you know, that's not going to work so well for me where I'm going today. What sandwich would you suggest? And Polsky said, well, I told him the barbecue beef brisket is excellent. 
And so he said to them, oh, I'll take one for now and one for later. We continued to talk, and I asked a gentleman where he's from. He said, from Boston. And I said, well, if you're here for the mathematician convention, I won't have to explain the tax to you. Um, we talked for a bit. He thanked me for letting me to come in early before the convention started. And that was 11 a.m. At 6 o'clock, we started getting a stream of mathematicians from the convention. And, and I, I said to a few of them, how did you hear about us? Various mathematicians told Polsky that a main presenter at the convention named Greg Tang ended his talk by telling everybody to take out their pencil and paper. And I thought, pencil? And then I thought, oh yeah, mathematician. So um, he said, if there's one thing, Tang said, you do while in Minneapolis, it's go to the market barbecue. Polsky said, I'm wondering if that's the guy I let in earlier. So I googled Greg Tang, and there's a picture of him. He's an internationally known mathematician who has written a variety of children's books, such as The Grapes of Math, <laughs> Math Potatoes, and A Math for All Seasons. So Polsky shot an email to Tang, and Tang asked if the ribs were really as good as he said, and Polsky said they were, and he sent them a free slab of ribs. And Tang promised that when his publisher, Houghton, Mifflin Harcourt gets his website up, that Market Barbecue will be mentioned prominently. This man, Greg Tang, has become a walking, living banner announcing the culinary goodness of Market Barbecue because of the kindness and graciousness of one person. That's really, I think, how easy it is. It's paying attention to God. It's walking with him and knowing how much he loves you and staying in that place and walking in humility, recognizing we're broken. We have no right to stand in pride against any other person, a person you work with that you don't like. I don't care who it is. You don't have that ability because you know a God who has saved you and delivered you. And as a result of that deliverance, has a banner of love hanging over your head. And hopefully it is a banner that shouts out to the world through your acts of goodness and kindness and love and mercy that you know his love and they can know that love too. I'm going to ask you to stand. Let's stand. Father, I pray this Christmas the greatest gifts that we give out to people are these living banners and cards that go everywhere saying, God so loves me and I want to love you in a way that makes a difference, that touches you, that allows the Holy Spirit to move through me. God, I pray for all people here. And God, I pray for some who may, who may be just today, as I spoke in the first service, had a number come up and say, you know, I... I need a way. God, you have promised to be the one who makes a way when there seems to be no way. So God, I ask that you would come present in the hearts of these individuals who right now are saying, God, I need that. And some of you who maybe believe your sin is so great that it's an obstacle, God says, today know this truth. Jesus has come and he is your highway into the presence of God. Receive him, accept him, and, and acknowledge him and invite him into your life and begin to know his love and his grace and his mercy. And I pray the Spirit of God, if you've opened your heart and you've said that, Spirit of God, now come and confirm in them what you have said. God, thank you. Thank you for this time. Let's continue to allow God to work as we sing to Him.